Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. From the top, Jerry Bruckheimer, Timothy Spall, Josh Demel, Jeremy Renner, Tony Hale, Namdi Asama, Robert Patrick, Richard Lewis, Scott Feinberg, Miles Teller, Rob Reiner, Mark Wahlberg, Margot Robbie, John Ridley, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, J.K. Simmons, Errol Morris, Tracy Letts, Christy Lemire, Nicholas Cage, Ethan Hawke, Paul Rudd, Max Bredos, Brian Fogel, Tony Parker, Zoe Deutsch, Helen Hunt, Michael Imperioli, Omar Epps, Mark Razzo, Hank Azaria, Fat Jew, Paul Schrader, and David Leach. What a year! Year number two was on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, to our tremendous talent bookers, Carlton Gillespie, leading the way, getting it done for all of us. Executive producer Dan Stanzik, coordinating producer Rick Passmore. I'm Adnan Burke. Thanks so much for making Cinephile a success. This is our two-year anniversary episode. Question for the peanut gallery of Dan and Rick. Of all those guests I mentioned, which of those guests was your personal favorite? Last year, we all agreed, before Ricky was a part of the show, Billy Bob Thornton was probably the best interview. De Niro, obviously, the biggest name. Passmore, of all those names, 35 guests, year two cinephile. Which one did you like the most? I got to say, I loved uh, Hank Azaria and Richard Lewis. Nice. Those were two of the, I'm a big comedy guy, so uh, those two coming in hot. And uh, obviously, Azaria probably tops that just because of my personal experience. But uh, overall, Richard Lewis, fantastic. Hank Azaria, fantastic. Danny? I'm going Max Bretos. I don't think you listed him. <laughs> I did. You did? Okay, so I'm going again, Bretos all producer. day for the win. Max was phenomenal. I, I agree. He was very funny. It's not have maybe the Q rating of some of the other stars, but listen, huge success now. LAFC, burgeoning. I was going to go with Lewis as well with Ricky. Also, Willem Dafoe I thought was terrific. Gave us 20 minutes of his time. Such a great actor. He was very generous. Um I also love Timothy Spall. I mean, all these guys were great. Now I look at them all. Rob Reiner I thought was really funny. Never thought we talked to Rob Reiner. <laughs> it's great. So thanks as always to our illustrious guest list. Our way of giving back, by the way, and thank you to all those who listened last time. Paul Schrader, uh, we thankfully we wanted to get masturbation on a cinephile episode. He did get that in with his answer about Jake LaMotta in prison and Raging Bull. And Dan, did you listen to the interviews? Thank you to Travis Rockhold who oversaw both interviews. Did you listen to either interview? Are you asking on the air or off the air right now? <laughs> we'll make it off the air. Uh, not in their entirety. Okay, but I just want to know, David Leach, did you listen to the answer? About... I have not gotten okay. to That's... the Atomic Blonde portion yet, okay. although I was recently listening to the podcast that I was not a part of, Okay, the Tribeca, Tribeca Recap, which <laughs> yeah. was very good by you two. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. We, we know Jill Haley, who's a very consistent Twitter supporter, did not like that episode. She tweeted and goes, this one was only okay. And she I missed to... me, right? And I wanted to write back. I'm like, not enough Dan Stanzik, right? Like she said. But uh, I thought Rick would kill that one. Paris Hilton story. Very good. So, again, thank you to all those who listened. Schrader, Leach, you can always listen to all the episodes. In fact, all those interviews, you want to listen to them? Go ahead, check them out on iTunes or the ESPN app. Please, as always, uh, rank the podcast. I rank my movies at a four beliefs. You can rank it at a five stars. And post review as well. Two years in the books. Hopefully, many more years to go. Let us know what you think. Our way of giving back is the quiz. So, yes, Dan Stanzik has dialed up a quiz. You can win Cinephile shirts 
Listen, while supplies last, because large is now dwindling, there's very few left. I've got a, maybe 10 or 15 extra larges, whites, and extra large black, and then that's it. So I'm well, telling you. Here's what we got to do. Like, we just got to cozy up next to these marketing folks again that were so kind almost two years ago, a little less than two years ago, when they got us these t-shirts. Yeah. We haven't really asked for anything again. Like, we've yeah. just kind of been this podcast over in the corner yeah. that doesn't get anything. No one talks about it. They send right. out best podcasts of the month. Everyone's got to listen to these podcasts. They never yeah. mention us. No, we're still not getting paid, by the way, in case Yeah, also curious. not getting yeah. paid. Yeah, yeah. You, you gave me and Rick new titles today. We're not getting anything out of that other than you giving us titles. <laughs> so we got we to cozy up to them and say, hey, listen, like, what do you think? Maybe some hats, maybe some backpacks, something. Okay. I like the idea of hats. That's a very good okay. call. I was thinking about that. Um. Yeah, by the way, coming up to the Jay Barishel is very funny. Speaking of the great guests, you're going to love him. Solid 30 minutes, right, Dan? Like, I've never seen a guest give us this much of his time. Yeah, two Canadians just start talking and they never know how to end the conversation because they're too polite and too pleasant. <laughs> 30 minutes of Jay Barishel. Also review of Fahrenheit 451, Michael Shannon, Michael B. Jordan, new movie on HBO. But the quiz, I love when Dan dials these up. One time, it's very much like uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. One time he went very strong. Nobody could answer it. One time he went very easy. So now we're going to go just right. I think this is the fourth time we've done the quiz. I think it's the fourth. I think the third yielded zero results. <laughs> uh, this one I think is a little on the easier side okay. um, after the past experience, which hasn't been so good. So like I said, there's not a lot of T-shirts left. So I think we'll do, what, 10? Yeah. I think we can get 10. Should we use a hashtag? Maybe a hashtag cinephile. That'll be easy for us to filter them on Twitter. I like it. Use the hashtag cinephile. Just give us the answers to these five questions. Do so you want to add my email account or cinephile ESPN? Either. Okay. We either. can just, Rick can just click on the hashtag and that will filter them so they can either, they don't even have to tag us. They just hashtag cinephile and we're good. I love it. Okay. Question one. Name the Academy Award nominated actor that recognized Adnan at Jimmy Kimmel's post Oscars party. <laughs> it's a good one. Very okay. good. Okay. Right. French more? fries are involved in yeah. case you're curious. One of our more popular episodes. Yeah. Right? Question two. What film did Adnan rank as the best since 2000? Good. I like him. Yeah, again, you should know all of these. Yeah. Like, it's it's all you. Right. Question three. And I'm kind of disappointed with the way you started this episode now because I thought it was a good question. People were going to have to do their homework, but now you gave them some clues. Name the four actors, keyword actors. Name the four actors that have been guests on the podcast twice. Mm. So, that- for example, if you're listening to the Tribeca recap, you heard Burt Marcus that's his last name, right, Marcus? Yeah, yeah. He's been on twice, but he's not an actor, so he would not count. Ben Lyons, not an actor, would not count. Four actors We're gonna have, have to been check. on twice. Maybe Ben Lyons has an IMDb profile, but you're right. He's not. I have an IMDb profile from my time on Mike and Mike. Trust me. It's a thing. <laughs> Question four. Who, speaking of Ben Lyons, who did Ben Lyons recklessly refer to as one of the great American actresses in the yeah. past 10 years? That's the best question you have on this quiz. I don't know if going to top that, because that was... Reckless. It, it, no. Reckless by Ben. I reckless can't wait to talk about her. Reckless. Yeah. Another word would be hideous, but yeah, yes. reckless is correct. And the final question. Question five. Which actor routinely called Steven Spielberg during the filming of Schindler's List to make him laugh? Love it. Five questions. Excellent quiz. Hashtag Cinephile. Hashtag Cinephile. Let us know and fire it up. Um, Dan's segment, Every Man Will Be Coming Up in Defense of Rick Passmore, coming up. Just one review before we get to the very funny and insightful Jay Baruchel. Fahrenheit 451, currently on HBO, just debuted on Friday. And it's gotten some poor reviews from some. And I think that there's a real uh, dissemination that needs to be made right away. 
Have you read the book by Ray Bradbury and have you not read the book? So I may have read the book, but if I have, I don't remember it. So I'm going to count myself as not having read the book. 90% certain I've never read the book. So I may have liked the movie more than those who have read the book and who are trashing this latest adaptation, which from my understanding is a tough book to adapt. For those who are unfamiliar, it tells the story of a dystopian future. Is there any other type of future? There's never like a utopian future. It's never a mixed bag future. It's always dystopian. It's dark. It's meddling. There are dark forces at work. And that's the case in Bradbury's vision. And Michael Shannon and Michael B. Jordan play a couple of firemen whose job is to find literature and burn it. That's right. They are the incinerators for all intents and purposes, and they're just trying to eliminate all those with any sort of interest in intellectual discourse and reading books. And there are some images which, I mean, if you're a bibliophile, you'll be offended by seeing all these wonderful works of art uh, being thrown into a big pile and burned. The best news is Michael Shannon, as always, is a beast. Uh, the, the villain in this case, because of course he's playing the villain. I'm not going to spoil. That's not a spoiler alert. Michael Shannon's the bad guy. Of course he is. Although the, the villain lacks some of his more eccentric villains, I'll say in the past, but he's still rock solid. As always, he's riveting as a guy who believes that a fireman, this is his job. His job is to eliminate intellectual thought and discourse and to remove that from people's brains and that books and literature by their very design are evil and poisonous. That he believes these are nefarious attempts to affect people. And, and Shannon is single-minded and convincing uh, in his character and believing that and that he's trying to help people by doing this. Michael B. Jordan plays his co-host or cohort and early on is totally in line with this type of thinking, but then has a moment of clarity and decides to flip to the other side. So my first quibble with the story was I didn't necessarily buy his transition. I knew at some point he's going to have to go from being on the dark side to the good side, so to speak. But I didn't necessarily buy that transition. I thought it was a little bit abrupt and could have used a little bit more character development. However, it's very striking visuals. Ramin Barani is the director. And, I mean, just the the images of fire. I haven't seen this much fire on the screen since uh, maybe Hanks and Castaway. I have made fire. Or Backdraft. Again, another way which made fire look so... um, so beautiful in many ways, and I thought they're very striking images, and like I said, of the future and what it, all that it portends. The movie, though, following HBO's movies here, could use a little more length, though, just like my criticism of Paterno, which I thought could have been a bit longer. This one's about an hour 40, could use another 15 or 20 minutes, because, again, I felt it got a little abrupt towards the end. Uh, but at the same time, because of Shannon's performance, who, of course, is one of our favorites on Cinephile, hopefully one day, knock on wood, we get him on the podcast. And because of the striking visuals, and Michael B. Jordan, I think, more than holds his own, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs, fully understanding those who have read the book probably will dislike the movie, and it's getting tepid reviews as it is. Ricky, did you have a chance to watch it? HBO just debuted this Friday. Haven't watched it yet, wanted to, and actually started reading the book uh, oh. because of it and never got to finish it because I'm a horrible reader. Uh, but... From what you've said and from what I got out of the first half of the book, it's a very short novel. It's not that very, it's not that long. Right. Uh, so what I'm gathering out of it is it would be very difficult to adapt because there really isn't much true overall character development out of what's needed for the plot. Right. So I can see where you would say it's hard to develop. There's like character development's not there. Certain things are hit or miss with it. So I'll watch it and see, you know, I'll watch it soon and see how it is and then attempt to go back and get the book from the library and finish the 90 pages I have left. Dan, our most well-read member of the Cinephile team, you have clearly read Fahrenheit 4. I have not read the book, but you had me at Michael Shannon, villain and intense. <laughs> clearly, for anybody who is like-minded like me and Dan and Rick, that will be enough to sell the movie, quite frankly. I had not read the book. I'm like, oh, Shannon's in it? Oh, he's a villain? Oh, he's crazy? Of course I'm going to watch this. Hour 40? Piece of cake. 
All right, that is Fahrenheit 451. I would have more movies to review. In case you want to know my review of Deadpool 2, which was on the previous podcast, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. How crazy is the world now, by the way? It opened at $125 million, and they go, mm, a bit of a soft opening. Are you kidding? Like, the movie made last time $650 million. It opens at 125 They go, mm, need a little more. It opened about $7 million less than the first Deadpool, and I think that's why people were kind of standoffish about that because – Sequel opening is always traditionally opening, better, and then it falls. going to go better, but right. you all – you got to remember, too, they're knocking off Infinity War, which is on pace to almost get close to breaking what right. Black Panther just did and also getting close to pushing Solo. $2 billion worldwide – so and you then can, you got you solo say, coming up, and yeah. you have solo, and it's a hard R, which means you're going to get less box office numbers from right. that. So people have to kind of take certain things with a grain of salt. Yeah. They're trying to blame the superhero fatigue, like you said. Right. But at the same time, 135 million opening for this just domestic is still very strong. It's probably not going to hold on to it because of solo opening next week. But at the same time, for a hard R, very niche type of superhero film. That's still very impressive, and it's probably still going to do five hundred million uh, domestic at the end of the run. Yeah, it's a little disappointing, but it happens. Uh, First Reformed also, I reviewed Three and a Half Maple Leaves. People were asking where to find it. It's in limited release right now. Brian Koppelman, who's one of the guys who works on Billions, he tweeted, First Reformed is the best movie of 2018, and he's going to have Paul Schrader on his podcast. I was not aware of Koppelman's podcast. Maybe it's a Billions-type podcast, but apparently he's going to get Schrader, so I'll make sure to listen to that for First Reformed. That's where you can find it. Otherwise, my movies, I've been focused on the Greenwich Film Festival. I'm going to be a part of the jury of the Greenwich Film Festival, another feather in the cap. I have to watch eight movies before June 1st. I've watched six of them. I'll be quite honest. One was outstanding. A couple were all right. Three were dreadful. So let's just hope we power through these last two and see how that goes. Uh, we're hoping to get Mark Teixeira, my buddy, who's the guy who hooked me up with this. Yes, that Mark Teixeira, the Yankees baseball great, uh, who is on the board of the Greenwich Film Festival and thus had me involved as part of the jury. It's tough for me to see with a straight face. I'm on the jury of an actual film festival. I cannot wait. Deliberations. I'm picturing like a 12 Angry Men scenario. Two other guys. I got their credentials. Like, what if we start fighting about this? Because because I'm telling you right now, if they pick one of the three movies as their best, I'm like, no, I'm not leaving this room until we pick not one of those three movies. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be my number one, but if they pick one of those three, and I'm telling you right now, they're very artsy. If these guys are like, no, I thought the French film was so, I'm like, no, that's garbage. That's exactly the kind of movie that wins at film festivals that shouldn't. No person would watch this movie unless they're on a film festival jury. I can't wait for stories from that. June 1st, the Greenwich Film Festival and my deliberations from it. But for now, Jay Baruchel, very funny, very entertaining, and very Canadian. He's got stories from Tropic Thunder, Million Dollar Baby, Goon 1 and 2. He's got it all. Take a listen now on Cinephile. A real pleasure to welcome to Cinephile, the great Jay Baruchel. His new documentary is called Celtic Soul. I encourage you to check it out. We'll talk to Jay all about it, but his credits also include The Hysterical, This is the End, How to Train Your Dragon, Goon 1 and 2, Tropic Thunder, Million Dollar Baby. He does it all. He's a huge sports fan, particularly the Montreal Canadiens. Jay, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So I grew up in Kingston. I was born in Toronto. I grew up in Kingston. One of my best friends, Jeff Lovelock's a diehard Montreal Canadiens fan. So whenever I, the, when I saw this at the end, I was so happy because I know you're such a huge Habs fan and immediately your character is, <laughs> of course, repping Montreal. So now you're the favorite actor of, of him and so many others. But before we get to that movie specifically, how did a Canadian make it big in Hollywood? I know that, you know, listen, we're known for being funny and we've got a great yeah. lineage of comedians, but how did you specifically make that transition? 
Oh, uh, well, in my case, uh, it was down to sort of two gigs that I got. Um, one was uh, I had sort of two scenes in this movie, uh, Almost Famous, uh, that came out back in 98 or 99. I was in uh, grade 11 in Montreal when I got that job, and they uh, flew me and my mom down to uh, L.A. and then and then New York. And then um, and I got to work with a bunch of really amazing actors and be directed by Cameron Crowe. And uh, he's kind of the guy that, that found me up here. Um, and uh, basically, um, flash forward uh, a year or two, and uh, I'm uh, in CJP in Montreal, and um, twiddling my thumbs, sort of going through the motions, not real psyched about being there, and got a phone call at, at home at my mom's house uh, from a casting director in L.A. who had seen me in uh, in Almost Famous and was casting um, a show that at that point was called The Untitled Judd Apatow Project, which would then uh, go on to become Undeclared, a TV show called Undeclared. And uh, that was kind of the start of, uh, of, of all of it. And um, I went from... Uh, yeah, I went from being a pasty-faced 18-year-old CJP student in Montreal to a pasty-faced 18-year-old lead of a, an American network TV show in a matter of uh, in a matter of days. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say it kind of all started with that. I love the Grade Eleven reference, telltale sign that you're Canadian, and also the fact that, like you said, if you mention French immersion, I'm really going to feel like I'm at home again. But getting hooked up with Judd and those guys, like that—that's what I find fascinating. Seth Rogen, fellow Canadian, I believe he's from mm-hmm. Vancouver. But um, mm-hmm. the fact that once you got, it's interesting, right? Like you look back now and go, "Well, yeah, you guys are so talented and so funny, and Judd's brilliant, and you and Franco and Rogen." I'm like, yeah, I got it. Like, how could that not work? But it seems fortuitous now to say. You know, if that didn't happen, where would your career path have landed, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely. So it's it's weird. I I I didn't expect. Uh, I I thought I'd have uh, quit acting at that point because I started when I was twelve and I was doing a bunch of like kid shows um, uh, in 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 Canada from the age of like twelve onwards. And but my my goal was always to be to be a director. And so I figured at eighteen, as the work kind of started to dry up for me um, back back home because I was like um, no longer anything close to a cute kid. And and nothing remotely resembling a man. Uh, it was just sort of a weird uh, in a sort of pubescent nether region uh, <laughs> of my life. And uh, so I figured if I had any money saved up, however much money I had saved up, I'd take it and hopefully go to film school, and then find a gig working at a video store, and uh, and then just write write movies, uh, write action movies and horror movies in my spare time. That that's kind of where I thought I'd end up being. And um, and yeah, it was. Uh, pretty profound uh profound shift in my life and 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 moment in my life to get that gig and to um to get to work with all those people and um you know i'm i'm 36 now and we did the pilot of undeclared when i was 18 and um yeah it's it's it is a pretty neat looking back um with hindsight at uh who all was around in those days well, you mentioned the fact that you worked with Cameron Crowe, almost famous. It's it's interesting because it's only after I'd seen this is the end that I remembered. I'm like, oh my god, Jay Barrowsell's a million dollar baby. Like I went back and, yeah. and, and you were great yeah. in that movie. And that movie won Best Thanks. Picture and working with Clint and and I mean I couldn't imagine for you at that point you work with Clint and Morgan Freeman and Hillary yeah. Swank and, and that's a tough character to play, right? Because you could fall this you could fall in this trap of playing this simple guy who's this you know yeah. he's made fun of and ridiculed. But there's a lot of heart to that character in that movie. Tell me about that experience. Thanks, man. That was nice of you to say. Um, yeah, that was, um, 
It was a pretty, uh, pretty big one. There was a pretty, pretty, there, there are, there are every, every audition is big, but then there are certain ones that are like, especially big. And when, you know, you have the chance to maybe get hired by Clint Eastwood, that's a, that's a huge one. And, um, and I remembered, I just sort of like, when I heard the character was meant to be from Texas, I breathed a sigh of relief because, um, in like 1979, 1980, my mom's sister, uh, moved down to uh, Texas and got married and had, uh, a bunch of, uh, had three sons and, uh, the, the, the eldest of which is only like a few, like maybe a year younger than me. So this is all to say that I've grown up around that accent throughout my life. And so I was like, I feel like I can figure this guy out. And I remember, auditioning for it and being the only guy in the waiting room that wasn't wearing like workout clothes. (laughs) Some people seem to think like if you're auditioning for a construction worker, you have to show up in a hard hat, you know? And um, so there was all these guys in hoodies and shorts with towels around their necks. (laughs) And I was like, I didn't get that email. Um, I, uh, I don't know if this bodes well. Yeah. I either, (laughs) either I'm a huge or all of them are. Um, <laughs> so, 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 and then, uh, and then I, I auditioned and, and, um, and then I didn't hear anything for months, for months and months. And I just assumed all oh, that's that. And, um, and then I was at a, a friend of mine's house, uh, in Montreal and him and his brother, his parent, the parents were away and they were in the process of rendering some rotten weed into hash, uh, oil on their stovetop. <laughs> when I got a phone call from my agent in the States saying, um, Hey, you like mystic river? Do you want to be in Clint's next movie? And I was like, Holy. And then, um, and then all of a sudden there I was on set with, uh, Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. And, I, for whatever reason, I, I, I'm anxious in all aspects of my life, except for on set. Um, and except for that day, because I was very, very scared because I was like, like I said, there's Morgan Freeman and there's Hillary Swank and there's Clint Eastwood. And, you know, I, I, I was scared because I, I, I was overcome with this like real, real strong sense of, I don't want to screw this up. Because, um, you know, no person uh, that I've ever worked for um, up to that point or since um, would be half as impressive to my granddad as Clint Eastwood. And, uh, you know, my my granddad passed away in 92. And, you know, I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg and Cameron Crowe and Judd Apatow and Ben Stiller. And I I like, you know, I'm a massive fan of all these guys. And I've been blessed to work with all of them. But the only person that would have been like, holy crap to my granddad was Clint Eastwood. And so this is all to say, like, I really don't want to screw this up. And, um, but I learned so much on that first day because after, uh, every take I'd say, um, uh, was that a right, sir? Was that a right, sir? And he'd always say, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. And I'm like, ah, and like, I, I could, I, I started imagining the scenario behind the scenes of a flurry of phone calls of like, where the hell did we find this kid? Find me someone who knows what the hell they're doing. And then I guess Morgan Freeman saw me kind of stressing out a bit and he leaned over and said, um, if he doesn't say anything, it means he likes it. And I was like, oh, that's right. Cause he's the director. What difference does it make how I feel <laughs> like if he's, if he's hired me and he's hired all of us and he thinks we've done the job he's hired us to do, that's that. And, and that really saved me and allowed me to keep acting for years and years and years because I just sort of like understood this profound truth that, all I need to do is trust the director. And a lot of actors have a tendency to 
keep asking for takes and, oh, I can get there. I know I can do better. I know I can do it. Well, if the person who's editing and shooting and, and envisioning the entire thing thinks you've done what they need you, they need you to do, that should be the end of it. So, yeah, it was pretty incredible, man. And one of the coolest things I've heard about Clint as a director is that he doesn't say action, right? He just says whenever you're ready, which I think is yep. a cool thing. Yeah, and and bare minimum of rehearsal. You know, you 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 run, you you rehearse the scene um, or block it maybe twice tops, and then he he averages around three takes per per shot, and so it's a really like he just has a complete trust in the people in himself and the people that he's put together on a, on any given set. And, and, um, there's no need to belabor stuff if he thinks, if he knows that he's gotten the moment that he needs. And I think that a lot of people, when, when you're on a set and there goes north of seven, 10 takes plus, uh, it sort of is probably, it's hard not to, uh, to assume that that means that the person doesn't know what the director doesn't know what they're looking for. And Eastwood is a living master, one of the greatest living masters in cinema. And so to get to be there and yeah, it's an incredibly rewarding process, but also a really, um, a really palatable one because you get there at like 9 a.m., 9.30, which is really reasonable. And I was eating supper in my hotel room by 7 every single night. Like, they finished that movie three days or two days ahead of schedule, which is just unheard of. <laughs> like, so, so yeah, um, one, one, of, one of the greatest, most edifying, important working experiences of my life. Oh, it's really well expressed. We're talking with Jay Baruchel's new documentary, Celtic Soul. I encourage you all to check it out. Speaking of, by the way, first off, we got to get this to Michael Mann, because if one take works, he'll do 53 takes. So he's going to figure out how to shorten this down. Uh, Hank Azaria was like, dude, it was unbelievable on heat. He wouldn't stop. I'm like, come on, man, we're good. Um, I just read Nick Nolte's book. And you mentioned Ben Stiller. He said Tropic Thunder was crazy, because if you're going to make a movie satirizing Vietnam... You end up actually making a war film, and it actually, with the pyrotechnics and all that going on there, it wasn't necessarily, and Nick said it was a fun experience, because Ben's so great, and you guys are all good actors, but he goes, it was intense, it was like making Platoon, because yep. you're making fun of Platoon. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent, um, uh, they, they spared nothing, um, and, and... The, on that movie, Ben and everyone took the action as seriously as anything else, and that's why I think it um, is as strong and sturdy as it is, and why I, I don't know that I, I, I can't name a whole bunch of other movies that I'm confident to say will be just as relevant 20 years from now as they are today. You know, I, I, I think it'll be one of those classics that'll be on TV forever, and 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 part of that is the like painstaking care that was made uh that it was made with you know like that we we shot that movie for over six months <laughs> you know um it's it's it, we we treated it like an epic and to that end you know ben ben hired john toll who shot thin red line and braveheart and so the movie and 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 all of the um pyrotechnics and the gunplay and all of that is almost all of that is practical old school practical apocalypse now style as well and my first day, my first day of work on that movie, we were shooting the opening kind of battle sequence that that opens the whole, the whole opens the movie, and we had uh, fifty stunt performers, fifty extras, uh, two dozen actors, um, two practical Huey helicopters, and the whole thing was just covered in squibs, and and it was. Um, Man, it was like the most fun I've ever had on a film set. <laughs> no. it's, it's it's like it was such a combination of everything that I love. You know, I, I grew up playing 
cops and robbers, cops and robbers, and and playing army when I was a kid, playing GI Joe, and here I was getting to do it um, as a grown up. Um, you know, getting having a rifle M sixteen at my side with a full ma- magazine full of ammo every single day. But on top of that, I'm getting to work with some of the funniest people on earth and do this really weird, uncommon movie that like. I don't know. It's a movie that has no sort of, uh, you can't be like, you know, it's like this meets that. The Tropic Thunder kind of defies comparison. And, um, and once again, I was like just incredibly lucky to be there for half a year and get to watch it get made. Very Canadian of you to have that humility, but trust me, you were an indispensable part of that movie. And speaking Thank you. of great comedies, I'm telling you, this is the end. I had it on my top 10 of that year. I think it's one of the funnier movies of the decade. What I want, what yeah. Christmas is this. It's obvious you guys have great chemistry. You and Rogan and Franco and, and everyone together. My curiosity is always this. When I see those movies, how much of it is ad-libbed and how much of it is on the page? Because my instinct is to say, oh, they're all they're buddies, all... so they're riffing. But, I, but then I said, no, maybe Danny McBride actually did have that all in the script and he committed it to memory and he executed it flawlessly. <laughs> um, it, it, it depends. It depends um, what said in what movie. Um, on that one, we had like pretty pretty good understanding of the sort of structure of the story and the what what how it needed to start how it needed to continue and how it needed to end um now on the way there we it was wide open to to um to ad lib so i I, i'd say that like the kind of structure of the movie and the story um was was very much written and was uh understood and and figured out you know before we shot it as you do with as you're supposed to do with most movies um but uh, i'd say like 80 plus percent of the words that people say in the movie is um our our ad-libs are we came up with on set so um it's kind of a, a combination of the two and and um i feel compelled to mention that like ad-libs also really only work if the people making them uh understand the the scene that they're shooting in the context of the whole story and uh you know it's it can't just be a guitar solo for guitar solo's sake it has to it has to yes it has to be funny but being funny is one box out of like three or four that need to be checked um and yeah thank you for saying it's a very very funny movie because i agree i i really like that one. oh yeah and i the one thing about judd too you always get this with his movies is that okay fine for some people they find it sophomoric or vulgar but there is like genuine heart in there like that, that i always say like they're actually really good movies and i'll fight to the death of who disagrees with that? Judd Apatow makes excellent movies, which happen to be very funny. I, I think so, and I and I think Seth and Evan, you know, coming up in that school and learning so much from him, uh, uh, take that uh, approach um, with 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 this is the end in a big way. You know, I, I I think that it's funny, but the reason why it's memorable is because you end up giving. A yeah. You know, there's plenty plenty of things are funny. Plenty of movies have one joke that's strong or a few scenes that are strong, um, but those are movies you fall asleep to on the airplane. You know, the, the movie that you remember and you kind of get, you know, feel a strong connection to and, and, and the movie you keep thinking about years later, that's one where something important happened. And, and you know, you it, it's a, he, he, the, the hardest guy out there needs something to affect his heart for him to give a shit about it. Simple as that. We'll get to Celtic Soul in just a second. My kids will be very annoyed with me, Jay, if I don't ask you about how to train your dragon. Tell me, me, listen, it's not about Canadians and voiceovers, right? Will Arnett's obviously a great (laughs) Serena. You've had a huge success with this. Tell me about how to train your dragon. 
Yeah, and I had also vague mentioning that the director of the um, How to Train Your Dragon movies, Dean Dubois, is uh, from Elmer, Quebec. Nice. <laughs> yeah, Sheraton College graduate. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I was. I was in Hawaii on the Isle of Kauai shooting uh, Tropic Thunder uh, when I uh, basically got a call saying, um, "Do the DreamWorks Diggs doesn't hate what you're doing every day, and they'd like you to audition for this." cartoon movie and um and so i went in on a day off on like a sunday and um and uh yeah flash forward a decade later and i'm i'm um part of this like global franchise that is a lot of people's favorite movies of all time that are a lot of people's favorite movies of all time so um <clears throat> i'll be perfectly honest i was just like lucky enough to fall ass backwards into into my star wars <laughs> you know it's um i i have it, it's been so cool because my job is to you know uh say five or six times a year for three years i go in and record for two hours and uh and then after that three at the end of that three-year period uh, this incredible work of art is released and my voice is in it. And um, it's, you know, means a significant amount to people across the world. And it's especially cool because I know firsthand that how much there's nothing in my adult life that I've liked as much as the stuff that I liked when I was a kid. When you're a kid and you like something, you like it with the entirety of your heart and it means everything to you. And you remember it fondly, fondly, fondly throughout the rest of your life. In fact, it often sort of pushes you to become the adult you're going to become. And I know that I'm a part of movies that are that for a bunch of kids already. And it's really, really neat that like, as the, you know, the more, the more, the, the, the more years go, go by and the, these kids start to grow up, it just is like uh, more and more and more people across the world um, have this movie that I'm, that I'm a part of the, these movies I'm a part of um, as real significant parts of their lives. And, uh, and that's, that's a really, really cool thing. Speaking of significant parts of your lives, Celtic Soul, your new documentary. This is trading on your passion for soccer. Like I said, I knew the hockey stuff, but tell me all about this and where people can find this terrific documentary. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, thank you very much for saying it's terrific. Um, yeah, uh, uh, um, my uh, sort of other great sports uh, athletic love is uh, Glasgow Celtic Football Club. Um, and for those who don't know, it's a very old-ass soccer team in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, one of um, really one of Scotland's two most famous clubs, um, the ri- and uh, the rivalry between Glasgow Celtic and, and uh, Glasgow Rangers um, is, uh, well, just Google it. And it's, um, it's, it's the stuff of legend and myth. And, um, and I've had a deep connection to this team for a long time, um, given sort of uh, its origins and what it means to, to the sort of people that it, uh, that it means stuff to. And, uh, you know, it was sort of my mom, family are um, predominantly Irish Catholic, and this was a team that was uh, born um, of the um, potato famine when uh, the streets of Glasgow were flooded with uh, Irish immigrants uh, fleeing uh, fleeing famine and seeking a better life, and uh, Celtic was a gift to them, a soccer team 
created by the Catholic Church to to uh, to keep everybody uh, busy and occupied and out of trouble. And to this day, it still has a profound connection to uh, to charity and uh, and to all that stuff. And and it's just um, hard not to hard not to sort of fall in love with the romance of Celtic. And uh, anyway, so. This movie is um, a sort of road trip with, uh, you know, following me and, and my friend Owen O'Callaghan, um, soccer journalist from uh, from Ireland, and uh, we sort of go on this road trip starting in Montreal and ending up in Glasgow. And along the way, we learn a whole bunch about the history of Celtic, as well as uh, my family's ancestry, um, our story. We sort of follow uh, this one kind of interesting thread of uh, one of my great-granddads and, or great-great-granddads uh, leaving this small town in Ireland called Westport and making his way to Canada. And then we actually get to go there. And so, anyway, it's it's also a great, there's also a great deal of swearing in it uh, because it's Owen and I in a car for days on end. Um, but yeah, hopefully uh, it's, it's entertaining, good music, um, some good sport, love letter to uh, the nexus of sport culture and and history and um and yeah right now i know um in the states you can get it on itunes perfect that's an excellent sell for it. check out celtic soul on itunes now it's time to get really canadian so mm-hmm. goon one and two terrific movies my old buddy james Thanks. duffy so duffy i i used to work at tsn i went to ryerson and then i worked at tsn behind the scenes so duffy's first ever shift he can corroborate this i worked prompter for him so he was all of his considerable success to me I want you to. <laughs> I want you to confirm this, Jay. Gino Reddick yeah. turned down the role. Michael Landsberg turned down the role. Duffy did it, but he was a dreadful actor, and you had to save him in post. Is that true or not? <laughs> this, there's about 14 other old uh, old white guys you, you you skipped over before we landed at Duffy. Um, um, in fact, Duffy paid to be in the movie. Uh, no, uh, absolutely not. Uh, James Duffy, we <laughs> we wrote that part for him. <laughs> we, uh, my my writing partner Jesse and I are um, massive TSN fans, and uh, he's been a significant part of uh, of our uh, Boxing Day through New Year's traditions for uh, for for the bulk of our adult lives, and. Um, you know, for for people that don't know what the hell I'm talking about, I'm talking world about the World Junior Juniors, hockey, yeah. and it's uh, the most exciting hockey there is, in my opinion. But anyway, um, Duffy was uh, kind enough to give us his time, and uh, and we got to go shoot at on the TSN studio in uh, in Scarborough, which is real cool. Um, so I, I I wish I could give you the satisfaction of saying that we had to suffer James Duffy, but uh, the movie's much better for it, and he was our number one choice. Well, Michael Landsberg, I just spoke to yesterday on TSN Radio, of course, of OTR fame. He says, by the way, he's a big fan of you. I know you've been on OTR before. He swears that he was offered the role first. So Landsberg is, <laughs> is either lying or Duffy's lying. I don't know which. I, I don't. That sounds like a bit of broken telephone. It might very well. Someone someone might have reached out to Landsberg first, but uh, but I, it wasn't me. Duffy, I've only had eyes for James Duffy. <laughs> I tell my buddies here in America, he's like Canada's Bob Costas. He can do it all, and obviously he's, he really. There's, he's an institution. He's an institution because he he's the real, actual institution that that's, that CBC and everyone else keeps trying to convince us that Don Cherry is. Um, <laughs> like James Duffy is the guy that we actually like, and is actually on in every household in the country. All right, um, I want you to rank the following Canadian items: export uh-huh. cigarettes, coffee crisp, poutine, and Mordecai Richler. 
Oh, good Lord. Uh, that's a hard one, boss. Um, well, <laughs> probably... Dave's from probably Montreal, everybody. So if you're from Montreal, Mordecai Richler is an institution, literary icon. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I'd have to start with... I go uh, Richler. Um, Expert A's are pretty great. Uh, then Coffee Crisp, and then puts in. <laughs> You're a diehard Montreal Canadiens fan. I'd like you to rank the following four. Number one's going to be easy, obviously, Patrick Waugh. But since you're 36, I'm also including Mats Naslin, Craig Ludwig, and Stefan Richer. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'd have to go Agawa, Richer, uh, Naslin, Ludwig. I, I thought you'd have a soft spot for the defensive defenseman of Craig Ludwig, but that's probably accurate. <laughs> And Stefan Riche was uh it was just like that was my one of my dad's favorite players. And and uh worth noting the the last Montreal Canadian to score fifty goals in one yes. season of hockey. Very true, very true. And lastly, because Canadians have the funniest people. John Candy, Mike Myers, Phil Hartman, Jim Carrey. You don't have to tell me which ones you think are the best, but for personal influence or maybe a sauce but you have. John Candy, Mike Myers, Phil Hartman, Jim Carrey. Well, John Candy, there is, there's, there's only ever been one, and there will never be a, you know, uh, we will never, we will never see his like again. Um, he gets, I think, uh, unfairly lauded in with other people sometimes, and I really think he had an energy unto himself. And there's like, he made, he found a way to make being nice funny. And that's a that's 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 a pretty special thing. In addition to his superhuman uh, abilities and his stature and everything, he's like a force of nature. But the the really cool thing was that like he he found a way to make being nice funny, which is uh, I think um, really really cool and uncommon. Um, Jim Carrey is like there's nobody my age that uh, didn't grow up watching Ace Ventura and The Mask on repeat, and so his like his influence cannot be cannot be uh, uh, overexpressed. Um, Phil Hartman, I mean, holy crap! I was like, I, I remember when he when he died, and and I was a kid, and that was a that was a big one for me because. Um, because as big of an SNL fan as I was, um, I was and still am an even bigger Simpsons fan. And um, and he was somebody I was always proud to claim some degree of uh, patriotic ownership over. Um, so, yeah, um, Hartman is like no, – no, nobody did what he did. And uh, I the, the fact that he has as many iconic Simpsons characters as he does SNL characters is a testament to his abilities. Um, and then Mike Myers, you know – that's um that's he's he's a sort of there's an argument to be made that he's Canada's Peter Sellers and uh you know I I I I a sincere true uh artist uh, um in the in the craft of comedy and and someone who's always 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 worn his um his roots um and his culture on his sleeve and um you know aside from aside from the rather uh ridiculous idea that uh the Leafs would win the cup love guru there would be the Leafs would win the cup like they did in love guru um and and you know but by the way we could talk for seven hours about what's wrong with the love guru but but i i by, by far its greatest in is the sort of Leafs la final that that he predicted would happen um but uh but yeah no i i um again given given my like i i i i Given the era that I grew up in, in my age, I, 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 again, I can't overstate how important Myers is. Like, my dad took my friends and I to see Wayne's World um, in the theater on my tenth birthday. So there it is. 
That's wonderfully expressed. Last one for you, and I promise, Jay, thanks for being so generous with your time. Because I know you're such a big Habs fan and a hockey fan, because when people ask you the best sports movies, I always mention The Rocket, which is about Maurice Richard, and not enough people have seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. Can you just tell the audience how great it is? It's a very, very good flick. Yeah, it's um, it's an important story. I, 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 um, and and really, really well acted, and it's a beautiful look at. Um, I think personally, I think the hockey could have been a bit more exciting, but True. anyway, that's that. But I, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a. I'm a bit biased when it comes to uh, filming hockey, um, but and what movies have done it best. But but the rocket is um, well, Roy Dupuis just um, just basically uh, he gets possessed by by the rocket. So the, it's not a it's not a performance by an actor so much as you're getting to watch somebody uh, channeling the rocket, and you understand why he's the Babe Ruth of hockey and um, and the sort of watching that movie you get a really good sense of why the Habs aren't like any other hockey team that uh most hockey teams the sole and uh, masters that they have to answer to um are victory right most mo- most hockey teams the only thing that's important is winning and the Habs have so many po- uh, cultural and political um connections and ramifications to everything they do and uh so it just makes for uh <laughs> It makes for being. It makes for the experience of being a Habs fan a very weighty one, and you get a really good sense of that in the Rocket. The talented and very funny Jay Baruchel, Million Dollar Baby, Tropic Thunder, Goon One and Two, How to Train Your Dragon, This Is the End, and Celtic Soul currently available on iTunes. Tremendous stuff here on Cinephile Man. Hopefully, one day you come to ESPN, we can actually break bread and have some poutine together. But thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. I look forward to it, bud. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you. If you're looking for a reason to work with a local Geico agent, I have all of them. Because I'm the voice of reason. Reason 1. Geico agents could help you save on more than car insurance. Reason 2. They can help tailor your policy to fit your needs. Reason 3. They're local. And 4. They're local. Yes, I already said that, but it's still a good reason. And if you're looking for more ways to save, your local GEICO agent can help with more than just your auto insurance. Stop by or give them a call today. They're here to help. So I vividly remember watching the World Series in 2009. Mark Teixeira was a part of that Yankees championship. And now who would have thought, just nine years later, he's coming on Cinephile and we're boys because he works for ESPN. And we have a great time on baseball tonight. Tex, thanks so much for the time today, man. Great to be here, my friend. Thank you for having me. So Greenwich Film Festival, and probably I am on the jury. There's eight movies I have to watch. I've watched six of them so far, and it's all because of you that I have this very plum gig. This is very cool. Who can say they were part of a film jury? Please tell me how you first got hooked up with the Greenwich Film Festival. Yeah, so the Greenwich International Film Festival was founded in 2014 by some friends of ours in Greenwich that really wanted to to kind of bring film to the forefront and, and the social issues that, uh, that can really make a difference in our country uh, through film. And uh, they had this idea that, you know, Greenwich is kind of a sleepy town and, and it's close to Manhattan, but, you know, wanted to do something on their own from a film standpoint. And uh, you know, had this idea of promoting the Greenwich International Film Festival to, to get, you know, people's words out there, to get people's stories out there, to help make changes around the world. And it's been really cool. 
And that's the, I think the beauty of this, like you said, you're spreading film, you're spreading cinema, and there's so many great film festivals out there. Tex, obviously Cannes is very famous south of France, the Toronto Film Festival we know about, uh, Tribeca, et cetera. When it comes to Greenwich and you're trying to kind of balance between, you know, really hardcore cinephiles who are going to watch foreign films, independent movies, and then a festival which is more about mainstream movies, how do you think the programmers decide the selection of films? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, there are there are hundreds and, and even thousands some years of films that, that come through our programmers. And uh, some of them, honestly, are awful and uh, are unwatchable. But there are so many great films out there that you just need the right group of people to watch, that the right audience. And, and I think what we try to do is we are very kind of honest that um, these, are, these films, a lot of them are, are pushing – you know, social justice agendas, pushing um, stories that people maybe, you know, are uncomfortable telling. There's a lot of stories that will completely break your heart. A few will uplift you, but uh, again, very, very socially conscious and maybe not a film festival that people from around the world will, will know now. But hopefully as we get going, people will say, hey, did you hear about that great film that premiered at the Greenwich Film Festival? And uh, someday we'd like to get there. Talking right now, Mark Teixeira, Greenwich Film Festival is coming up. When people think about experiences at festivals, Mark, exactly what you said. You say, I remember watching Pulp Fiction. I remember watching whatever film it was and the reaction it was in the crowd. Is there a film you can remember specifically with regards to Greenwich, either you were a part of or somebody you were close to who said, man, you should have seen the audience reaction watching this movie? Oh, man. Um, that's a good question. Actually, one of the uh, one of the cool things that I, that I got to do was um, – we got to be the second filming, the, the premiere of the Entourage movie, nice. which is not what we do at all. I mean, it is, the Entourage movie was kind of that fun, you know, uh, you know, bro type movie. And, and what we got to do is, is basically show people that, hey, we can bring in someone like Entourage. We can bring in Doug Allen. We can have fun. And people get really excited about the festival. I think we did that in probably – April or May, the festival was in June. This is a few years ago. And so when people showed up to Entourage, they got excited about who the type of people we could bring into the festival. And then, um, you know, we're able to maybe gain a little bit more traction, uh, you know, because of bringing in a type of film. That's awesome. Greenwich Film Festival is taking place. I'm going to be there at the uh, opening of party uh, June 1st, but the pass of the festival currently available now May 31st to June 3rd. Tickets are on sale. Go to Greenwich, that's G-R-E-E-N-W-I-C-H film.org and learn all about the film festival. For you specifically, Tex, as a movie guy, because I always wonder, I'm curious, ball players. obviously you guys work so hard at your craft, but then there's downtime. There's a reason why starting pitchers like Mark Mulder and John Smoltz are such good golfers. A guy like you, a first baseman, day in, day out playing, where did the love of movies come and how were you able to develop it? On planes, Adnan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we flew cross-country so many times, especially when I was in the West. I spent the first five years of my career in the AL West with the Rangers and the Angels. Because of that, we were flying cross-country all the time, and I would have hours and hours and hours. Um, and so buddies on the team would just start talking about, hey, have you watched this movie? Have you watched that movie? Uh, as I got older in my career, you started having the – the TVs in the headrests, right, uh, of the planes. And you could kind of go through you know, 40 or 50 movies if you wanted to uh, on the plane. And I just, I started watching just different types of movies. You know, I like indie flicks. I like the coming of age. I, 
I'm a sucker for uh, you know a high school graduation party type movie or um, you know a kid that that studies abroad for the summer or something like that. I'm a, I'm a sucker for those type of movies because they don't get the play, they don't get the big um, Oscar awards that that everyone else gets, but. Uh, they, they can be really cool movies. So coming of age movies are a personal favorite. I'm guessing Goodwill Hunting is your favorite movie. It's so good. I mean, that that movie, everyone wants to think that they're that smart or wants to think that, like, they can be this, like, tough guy that, that can take on the world. We can't. And, man, we're just we're regular dudes. And, uh, you know, we just we try to do our best and we try to, you know, add a little bit for our kids or something like that. But watching Goodwill Hunting, it just kind of makes you feel like, Hey, there's uh there's some cool stuff happening in this world. My producer Dan Stanzik loves to film Lady Bird. I don't know if you're on board with Lady Bird. I liked it a lot, Dex. I don't know if you've seen it, but what was your favorite movie from last year? Ooh favorite movie from last year would have been I gotta say Dunkirk. Nice. It took it took me a while to watch it, um, because I'd heard mixed reviews, right? Mm-hmm. The cinematography just the like the shots of the beaches and um, how normal people thought it was to to be standing on a beach and just have bombs coming down and looking around and being like, okay, it it really put me there. Uh, I you don't see a lot of movies that you can actually put yourself on that beach, and that was one of them. Um, so that was that was a pretty cool one. Yeah, Christopher Nolan, incredible director. Also, you remember, as I mentioned, the 2009 Yankees won the World Series. Which actor would play you if they made a movie about that team? <laughs> man, I, you know, I'm kind of boring, Ed, man. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not one, uh, I'm not one to fly off, you know, fly by the seat of my pants. I'd probably say it would be like a George Clooney type guy. Um, good, good looking, but quiet confidence. Uh, I'm not sure if George Clooney can swing a baseball bat, but if he could, he'd uh, he'd he'd be great for the uh, for the '09 World Series. He's allegedly a really good baseball player. At least he was. I know now he plays pickup hoops all the time. Clooney got a tryout with the Cincinnati Reds, which was his hometown team. In fact, I've never seen George Clooney happier. He was on Ellen, and they brought out Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench, and literally he looked like a kid in a candy store. So you know what? That is awesome. Yeah. This is how, how, how did you how did you know that, Adnan? I mean, that's like I, no one knows that. You, you got these nuggets, <laughs> man, that, that no one else has. I appreciate it. it's a it's a random factor, which really has no use anywhere else, Tex, except for my <laughs> podcast, which you know. Oh, uh, that's great. Greenwich Film Festival is coming up May thirty first to June third. I will be on the jury. Lauren Hill opening night performer should be awesome. Mark Tashir is a part of the board. You can always see his great work on ESPN on Baseball Tonight. Tex, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. And man, this was a blast. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys, let's be real here. I'm turning 40 in a couple of months, and 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. All right? I know it's not the details you want to hear, but it's true. I started to lose my hair late 20s, receding hairline. And when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Seriously, look in the mirror right now. Check out your hairline. Slowly starting to move backwards. Any bald spots yet? How are you going to feel when it gets worse? You want a bald spot to pop up? You want the hairline to go back even more? Why do guys turn to weird solutions when they can turn to medicine and science? Or even worse, do nothing and just say that's life. I'm telling you right now, here's the solution. 4 It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and other wellness supplements for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. That's the key. You can't grow more hair, but you can keep what you got. 
No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. This is prescription solutions backed by science, and there's no waiting room. There's no doctor visit. No one's going to see you. Just go to 4 So easy. Answer a few quick questions. A doctor's going to review it and prescribe you the products or ship directly to your door. I'm telling you, they could not make this easier for you. So order now. My listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today right now while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash Cinephile. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Cinephile. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. For com slash Cinephile. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. Wow, what an intro. Wow, thanks so much for having me on a special two-year anniversary of Cinephile. Where has the time gone? I mean, unbelievable. When I think back of all the memories, like Adnan getting sick at Sundance and Passmore having promotional sushi with Paris Hilton, I mean, what a, what a whirlwind the last two years of, of film conversation here on the podcast. But I want to go, uh, gonna go off the rails here and provide you with a little story from uh, covering a, a tiny little film in London called The Golden Compass. It has nothing really to do with Cinephile or my love of being a part of this podcast for the last two years. Adnan just wanted me to share some weird Hollywood stories with you guys. So here goes. I was across the pond covering The Golden Compass, a movie that I think I liked and relatives of the filmmakers liked, and that's about it. I was interviewing Daniel Craig in a very famous hotel. I think it was the Dorchester in London. And those hotels haven't really been renovated in a while. A little stuffy in those hotels. And as you know, for an interview, there's lots of lights and cameras all packed into a small hotel room. So I would start to get a little moist, if you will. And that moisture turned into a palpable sweat, like a Richard Nixon in a presidential debate type of sweat. And I thought it would be a good idea in my interview with Daniel Craig to hold an ice cube in my left hand, thus keeping me cool throughout the interview and preventing the sweat. Well, what happened about halfway through my conversation with Daniel Craig is that the ice started to melt in my hand and drip down my shirt sleeve. And it became so wet and so runny that James Bond, 007, the coolest man on the planet, said, excuse me, can we stop the interview? Terrible British accent just there. What is coming down your shirt? And he proceeded to then spend the, the rest of the interview making fun of me, calling me the Iceman. I tried to throw in a George Gervin reference. He didn't get it. It just was awkward and horrible. So I sat down with James Bond, the coolest man on the planet, and he made fun of me for 10 minutes. That's my Lion's Den story. Congrats on two years of Cinephile, guys. Look forward to another two more. Hopefully more than that. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. I love it. It's the best open of the year. I really resent that open. Get out of here. <laughs> and his reviews reflect that? Come on. I'm yeah. highbrow. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, my brother is now in on a long came Polly because of your review. He was not aware of it. As soon as you mentioned I mean, it's sharded- not a superhero movie, so I'm not surprised <laughs> that he hadn't seen it. But you mentioned the sharded line. He goes, all right, I'll watch it this summer. That's it. Okay, great. <laughs> and Ben Koo of Awful Announcing loved the Michael Clayton review. 
When did Ben Koo say he liked the Michael Clayton? Yeah, I think you mentioned that to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, he tweeted it. We'll go back through his tweets. He said, cinephile, love it. Really like the Michael Clayton review. There's something else he liked in that episode specifically, but he liked that specifically. My guy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Normally you tee this up with like, he did this, he did this, and then right. I kind of poly- get right into it. I'm almost like, it's almost like the Greg Cody back in my day. And yeah, I Greg Cody. burst on to the scene. So set it up a little and we'll. Along Cape Polly was outstanding the last one. Michael Clayton was one of the more highbrow ones you did. You also did uh, Con Air? No. No, it was uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, yeah, which was all right. So now I'm curious where you're going to go with this. I love you, man. <laughs> yes, a 2009 comedy starring Paul Rudd as Peter Clavin, a newly engaged real estate agent searching for male friends to fill out his wedding party. Peter quickly enlists the aid of his homosexual younger brother, Robbie, played by a friend of the podcast, Andy Samberg, and goes on a series of mandates. What he learns, other than to avoid having dinner with another man, is something that most guys who have moved away from home realize in their mid to late 20s and early 30s. Finding new male friends is hard. I mean, outside of coworkers, friends of coworkers, and a potential girlfriend's male friends, the options are pretty limited. Guys rarely express interest in forming new male companions. It's just awkward, and no one does awkward better than Rudd. Peter eventually meets a potential friend at the open house for his high-priced listing, the Lou Ferrigno Estate. Sidney Fife, played by Jason Siegel, is there to eat the food and meet the divorcees, but the two of them have a brief chat and exchange business cards. It's at this point where writer and director John Hamburg, who coincidentally also wrote and directed Along Came Polly, uses all of the elements <laughs> of a romantic comedy, except Peter's pursuit is of Sidney. Instead of telling his friends about the girl he met, Peter tells his fiance and confidant, Zoe, played by Rashida Jones, about the guy he met. The awkwardness ramps up before and after their initial mandate. At first, Peter is too nervous to call, and then afterwards, he's unsure about how to call and say he had a good time. Classic rom-com tropes, but the platonic and gender twists make them work. Eventually, we get to a montage set to Tom Sawyer by Rush, slopping the basement, <laughs> where the friendship accelerates. With things going so well, we need some sort of conflict, right? Well, first, Sydney makes an overt oral sex suggestion to the bride-to-be during a toast at Peter and Zoe's engagement dinner. Then there's a failed co-ed golf date. This is my nightmare. And then a few more issues arise, which I won't spoil for you, but those of you that are familiar with rom-coms know what comes next. Yes, there's a breakup of sorts, which, of course, sets up a reconciliation at the end. I Love You Man is an hour and 45 minutes of hilarity mining in an important yet undercovered terrain. It has an 83% on the tomato meter at Rotten Tomatoes, and while Rudd and Siegel do the heavy lifting, they are supported by an excellent cast, including J.K. Simmons, the aforementioned Andy Samberg, John Favreau, Aziz Ansari, and Jamie Presley. Like any good comedy, its rewatchability is high, and I don't care who you're sharing wine and a summer salad with, it's better than chocolat. Great ending. Stuck the landing. I forgot about the supporting cast. I I, got, I liked it. I saw it once. I had no idea. He's in stars in it. J.K. Simmons. My favorite part was when Jason Siegel shows him his jerk-off station. Passport, you're a fan of I Love You Man as well? Uh, same deal. I've only seen it once, but what I do remember of it, I remember it very highly. Yeah, I liked it as well. All right, good recommendation from every man. I Love You Man. Check it out now. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of...
All right, Ricky, find me guilty. Great. Lumet, Vin Diesel, how are we going to top that? With the breadth of dystopian narratives revisited in film and television right now, <laughs> such as The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and the previously reviewed Fahrenheit 451, I decided to look back at a less serious take on a greater, on the uh, greater good fascism, uh, line of storytelling. 1993's Demolition Man starring <laughs> Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, and Sandra Bullock. Okay, we gotta send this to the Levitar show, right? They love Demolition Man. Go ahead. Celebrating its 25th anniversary this October, the sci-fi action flick currently holds a respectable 61% on Rotten Tomatoes, but a paltry 34 Metacritic score, garnering tepid reviews from critics such as David Anson of Newsweek, who states Demolition Man is a movie that should have been fun but isn't. I vehemently disagree with Mr. Mr. Anson. Demolition Man acts as an entertaining tongue-in-cheek 90s action flick, as well as a conversation starter on the effects of censorship in society. The film follows Stallone's John Spartan, an LAPD sergeant who is sentenced to cryogenic imprisonment for his negligence while apprehending resident madman Simon Phoenix, played with perfect camp by Wesley Snipes. When Phoenix escapes his own cryo prison during a 2032 parole hearing, Spartan is released to help capture his foe, not just because he knows him best, but also because during his 36 years on ice, Los Angeles has been turned into San Angeles, a squeaky clean utopia of sterilized harmony. It is so neutered from the aggressive nature of the past that everything bad for you has been outlawed, from alcohol and tobacco to cholesterol and vulgarities, to which you are immediately fined just for uttering. Even the police force is so repressed that they have an instruction manual on how to deal with hostiles. They call them, um, trying to remember what they call them, I think they call them maniacs in the movie. Uh, and they even lack the slightest insight on murder-death kills, their version of homicide. Enter the testosterone-filled ways of John Spartan, who challenges the mindset of this society, much to the curiosity of Sandra Bullock's Lieutenant Lenina Huxley, who is transfixed with the 20th century and longs for even the slightest action. Lucky her. Yet digging beyond the surface, both literally and figuratively, we are poised with the dilemma of what happens when the world is seemingly purged of all its iniquities. Phoenix is able to escape not just to bring mayhem to the par- not just to bring mayhem to the paradise but to kill off the underground rebellion leader Edgar Friendly, played by Dennis Leary and another victory for the casting department. Friendly's gangs are seen as blights on the new world, even as Spartan realizes that their crimes are less about upheaval and more about survival. They were outcasts that rejected the sanitized life being forced upon them. While they may feast on carnes de rata and stolen foodstuffs from the surface, Friendly exclaims that he would rather starve than live in a world where there is no free thought and that you live by the way of the ruling class. The clashes of 90s nostalgia and near-future fu- near absurdities may not date well as we bridge the gap to the San Angeles time frame, but with the awkward fish-out-of-water overtones, solid action scenes, and underlying commentary on the repercussions of utopian life create a cult classic worthy of multiple viewings. To note, Demolition Man is currently streaming on Hulu. Well done, Ricky. Listen, we got to send that to the Levitard guys because they love it. Stugatz and Mike Ryan sits in the Action Hall of Fame. That's how much they love that movie. And I went signed off on a segment by saying, be well. And Mike Ryan said that was a reference to Demolition Man. I didn't even yes, know that was. Is. I sometimes well. say it. What is that from? Who, who says it? In the Everybody. That's, that's their greetings. That's their, how are you doing? Be well. That's unbelievable. I yeah, just signed like off as a guy, like, right, guys, be well. And he goes, ah, oh, demolition man from Adnan. I'm like, I'll take the credit for it, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, so, now you, now you know, and knowing well. is half that's the battle. That's their greeting all the time. All right. And it's in defensive. Thanks, as always, to listening to Cinephile. Two years in the books. Thanks to Dan and Rick and Ben Lyons and Mark Teixeira and all the great guests like Jay Barrels that we've gotten. 
I just want to one more cast I want to discuss. Rick, you need to you need to answer this one. Did you listen to the Jerry Bruckheimer interview? Yeah. Okay. Because Dan and I are not sure on this, and I want clarity. Do you think he was a great guest and was really into it, or because he was very facile with his answers, very succinct? We weren't sure. Was he just being quick and just want to get out of the way, or does he naturally just speak in very clipped sound bites of fifteen to twenty seconds? I think he's been doing this for the better part of thirty years, and so he knows how to play the press. I think he was very interested in what was going on and very it was a very good interview it, it opened kind of opened your eyes to the type of producer and filmmaker that he is and and right. and, and honest with the old open where he says i don't make films for people that go and see my, uh, dinner, with my dinner with andre which isn't true because i would also watch my dinner with andre <laughs> plus jerry Bruckheimer films i have done that i love con air <laughs> we love pirates of the caribbean the early ones so let's be honest like right you he's not wrong but it's just a little off base however very engaging interview, especially with someone of uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's stature. Yeah, I remember it was a huge gap for us. I mean, like I asked him about Schrader, like I asked him stuff. I mean, I asked him the Top Gun stuff. You have to ask him. But it was, and it was like fifteen to twenty seconds. Just boom. I'm like, all right, well, yeah, he had stories and he wasn't giving them to you. Yeah. So you don't think he was going to interview? I like like Rick said. I think he's just been so well trained in dealing with the media over all this time. He knows how right. to just answer the questions briefly. Right. But if you if he was writing an autobiography, they wouldn't be fifteen second blurbs. <laughs> like he's got some stories. Right. And he knows where some bodies are buried, and he wasn't telling you. Not I'm, not that you should take that personally. No, of course, yeah. But unlike Walter Hill, who I'm talking about, Richard Pryor, and he's going into detail about Richard Pryor, what he was like, how he's a pain, but he was friends with him, etc. That's fair. All right. All those great guests. Check them out once again on iTunes, the ESPN app. Two years down. Way to go, baby. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. I'll have stories from the Greenwich Film Festival. Hope my deliberations are not like 12 Angry Men. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.